Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pine Ladder Podcast. My name is Paul LeFavre. I'm here with my ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. And we are coming at you from an undisclosed location deep within Pineland. Today, we're excited to have as our guest, Pete Crittenden, who is the author of Survival Mindset, a guide on what to do when things go wrong. Uh, Pete is formerly a 1st Special Forces Group and 10th Special Forces Group Green Beret. He's been there, done that. Uh, in his book, he has a lot of great things we can talk about today, uh, plus a lot of other great experiences uh, for our audience. Uh, our audience, of course, are guys um, that live in the community, the soft community. Uh, they want to live according to values that made our country free. So, Pete, it's a, a pleasure to, to get back in touch with you after years uh how you doing today sir i'm doing very well thanks paul <laughs> yeah man it's exciting uh this this topic is uh is i mean i think it should be near and dear to everyone's heart because uh in light of events going on in the world you need to have a book like this what do you think mike um well it's yeah i don't know i mean i'm probably like anybody else out there but you know you're always getting emails and everything else um you know, people are selling you products and, and, you know, and you can't help but watch the news and kind of get a little bit nervous. So, you know, you're looking at these emails, and you're looking at these advertisements and you're thinking, dang, you know, um, the world is, a, is, is looking unstable. Yeah, wars and, and rumors and, of wars. You know, and what am I going to do if, if uh, you know, the power goes out or whatever? So um, I think it's timely. Um, that, you know, we have the conversation with you, Pete, and just talk about your book. Cause I mean, this, this is something that I think everyone, at least in the back of their mind, they can ignore it all they want, but at the, even in the back of their mind, I mean, people are, are sort of instinctively knowing that they need to get kind of prepared. Absolutely. Um, yes. Well, I, I gotta say that's on everybody's mind these days, uh, to a great extent, um, because we're seeing, uh, we're looking double-digit inflation right in the eye, and shortages are happening, something I've never seen in an American supermarket before. I've seen it in, you know, countries in the challenging parts of the world, but uh, I've never seen it in the United States where you go there and there's no baby formula. Yeah. Um, there's no cat food, not that I don't care. I don't have a cat, but uh, it's telling. Um, there's things that I like to buy that are not there. Uh, the price of meat has doubled. The price of diesel fuel has doubled over the past year. And um, it's only going to get worse. Before this, the concern seemed to be we saw a lot of anarchy and rioting in the cities. What happens if there's a complete breakdown of social order? I live out in the country, but sooner or later, the you know the scum will emerge from the city because there's no food there. And they're going to come my way. What do we do? So there is an aspect of prepperism um, in the backs of everybody's minds. But that wasn't what I went, uh, what I proceeded to do as I went out to write this book. I just wanted to capture the principles, the basics, and give you a good foundation um, based on my experience as a survival instructor at SEER nice. and um you know, as a Green Beret and before that as a Boy Scout and growing up overseas and living and working on six continents. So that's what all went into the book. Well, and I, uh, Yeah, and I think this is exactly where you should start. Um, you know, prep, prepping really is kind of like building the home. But what you're doing with this book is kind of laying the foundation. Exactly. And that's what we want to do today. So we want, we want to talk to you about getting a good foundation laid. Yeah, you had uh, Exactly. Yeah, you had, uh, as someone uh, from the SEER community, uh, committee, uh, you know, you've, you, you've, uh, I mean, you've actually taught those lanes. So, yep. I mean, and you, you know, you learn a lot when you teach. So, obviously, if uh, you've been teaching people for 
about four decades now, and you're you're you taste you're placing all these gems into this one volume. So you're not just getting that; you also got you've got a philosophy uh, that uh, underscores all of this. And, and can you just tell us about the mindset? Like, what do you mean when you say mindset? Well, that's a very good place to start. Um, the survival mindset is like this. You can have all the resources uh, available in a survival situation. Um, but the, the most important thing is you've got attitude. Attitude is everything. It can make all the difference in the world. And I, I point out an anecdote. I include some anecdotes in the book. There was a, um, a, a Chinese guy. Uh, during World War II, he was a, 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 a crewman on a British merchant ship. And uh, the ship got torpedoed in the South Atlantic uh, by a German U-boat and went down. And he was the only survivor. And he managed to uh, find a raft. And, you know, those rafts in those days were a large cork ring with some kind of netting. And he got uh, some more debris together and built up his raft. And he had a mast and somehow a bit of cloth. And he had a, a biscuit tin, uh, which he used to collect water. And he lived over 400 days on the open sea and wow. survived. That, yeah, wow. <laughs> give that man a cigar. Yeah, that is wild. Wow. Okay, the Air Force, uh, what they call their uh, Air Force regulation, uh, which covers, it's their survival manual. Um, there's an anecdote in the beginning, and I don't know if it's true because it doesn't give a reference, but it talks about a guy that an aviator in a single engine plane that goes down in the Canadian wilderness, and he's in an open area. Um, and I think he's on top of a frozen over lake and there's a tree line and there's all the resources of the North American, you know, forested, uh, uh, area out there. Plus everything he's got inside his, uh, aircraft to include radios. Okay. And, uh, the, the, the anecdote they're trying to talk about survival mindset, the man smokes a cigar and then he pulls out his service, uh, automatically blows his brains out. Um, I throw in the caveat. I don't know if it's true because there's no uh, there's no reference. But the the point is, he had everything, but the attitude. Whereas the guy Pulim, uh, who was floating around in the South Atlantic, survived by his wits for over four hundred days, and he had nothing. That's survival mindset right there. The first instinct of man is to survive. And some and some people have it, and some don't. But I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to be you have to be stubborn about it. Yeah, if you can, as they say, you can take it, you can make it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. our modern life makes us soft and dependent on technology, and that's where the despair would come in. Oh yeah, yeah. You're you're uh, uh, the fear of the unknown. Absolutely. The uh, that's the question. I mean, it sounds like a you know, uh, you know something you would say in a Batman movie, but. We don't know what would give up first, you know, your spirit or your body oh, it's, or your it's, mind. Yeah, it is funny because, yeah. I mean, if you – and you're absolutely right when you say that because, you know, you get you get um, where you depend on technology yeah. and yeah. and where you you become 100% reliant upon it, but you'd like you don't know any alternatives other than it. Yes. Um, because I've seen that where, like, even with, uh, now this was back in my, when I was you know, teaching middle school uh, or even high school, but you would take a, let's just say you take a smartphone from a student. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, to me, it was like no big deal. It's like, you know, hey, this thing's distracting you. Let me take your smartphone, sit it over here. You can get it after class. Um, you could visibly watch them <laughs> despair you could actually you know visualize the despair you know like the the world had just collapsed right there and uh and i've witnessed that in several occasions like let's just say like the microwave goes out at the house you know it's like it, you know there's an oven directly underneath it but you would think the world ended because you know we don't we, what are we going to do now that we don't have a microwave so um yeah. you're absolutely correct about um really part of this mindset is realizing that you know, people survived for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years without any of these neat little gadgets we have today. Well, that's where I start out. In the beginning, I talk about man in the primitive state. Mm. 
and I talk about, um, you know, uh, prehistoric Stone Age type societies, people like the Australian Aborigines. And um, they, uh, they live in groups about 30 or 40, roughly the size of an infantry platoon. And the reason why is because the environment cannot support a larger group. They're hunter-gatherers. Um, and if there was too many of them, they'd start starving off or they split up. Um, and if there's too few, you can't survive. It's very difficult to make it with fewer than 30 or 40. And um, those 30 or 40 people go through all life, all their life, looking at the same 30 or 40 people. About once or twice a year, they'll, they'll get together with another group or all the groups will come together, a group of about 100 or 200. And they'll have what the Australians call a corroboree you know, a, a powwow, they get together, cross-pollinate, then go out to their own way, and you see the same 30 or 40 people all your life. Now, fast forward into our modern life. Just think about your average American worker, whether they're suburban or they live in some place like the New York megalopolis, right? Um, you can go down the street and not see the same person twice every day of the year. I, I I live out in the country, about 20 minutes up the road, there's a, a supermarket, a little strip mall, and, um, you know, a, they've got some shops and some restaurants there. I can go there every day of the week and not see the same person twice, okay? So the, in our modern society, we're living in this sea of strangers. Mm. Now, now yeah. we as humans have been around on the planet between 1 million and 2 million years, Okay. Uh, as our, our modern incarnation, I say modern, modern, as long as they were making artifacts, stone tools, beads, uh, cave paintings onward, um, a little less than, uh, <clears throat> a million years, maybe, uh, 500,000 years, 250,000 years, but that's how long we've been that, uh, hunter gatherer lifestyle is in our DNA. The, the anthropologists, the sociologists, the biologists, they say it takes about 35,000 years for an evolutionary trait <clears throat> to be, you know, observable, to, to manifest itself. So essentially, we're still walking around with that hunter-gatherer DNA. But we're in this sea of strangers. We're in this modern world. We're dependent upon uh, technology. And it's little wonder that people are going progressively more and more nuts every year. We're seeing more and more. And I say, well, the key is let's go back and look at that primitive lifestyle, study that primitive lifestyle, try to experience it as much as possible. Go out into the woods, hunt, gather, boil your own water, make your fire with a stick without matches um, and, and experience that. And that, to me, is part of the key, part of the pathway to developing the survival mindset and to, to developing uh, a kind of... Uh, situational awareness for the emergencies and the extreme situations that are out there. Well, that was my next question. You know, so you're, you're this individual, you've, you've been brought up your whole life in a very urban area, um, large city, or like even you were even mentioned the fact it didn't even have to be in a large city and still, you know, really not know anybody. Um, and that was, you know, like how, so that was my question, you know, how do you start developing this? So, you, you know, you, you realize that there's a problem. You realize that you want to, you know, be a, you know, a surviving event. You want to, you want to get a survival mindset. You want to do it for yourself. You want to do it for your family, whatever. Um, these are the things that you need to start doing that you need to start going back, trying to study what the, what the primitives are doing, what you're saying, and just start exercising some of these skills and start thinking, uh, the way a, a primitive man would think. Yes. Okay. That's important because I mean, that's, you're not going to be doing that up in your, you know, your loft or your apartment up in, you know, downtown, you know, LA. Exactly. You've, you've got to get out there into the wilderness and experience it, but you can get yourself hurt doing that. If you just go charging on out there and that's uh, part of the book addresses that, um, before you go out to the woods to do what you're going to do, have a plan, um, tell people where you're going, um, know what you don't know, ask locals for advice, uh, and then by all means go out there and uh, hug trees or what have you. Um, I'll give an example of how, how 
important the survival mindset is and how you can have it when you've got nothing. And there was a, uh, a young lady, her name was Autumn Veach, and I believe it was in 2015. Uh, she was about 16 years old. And uh, she's a bit of a goth, a bit of a couch potato, uh, typical, you know, um, Generation XYZ type. Um, and uh, she was with her grandparents in Idaho, and they were going to go take her back to her parents' place in uh, Seattle. And they were going to, the, the grandfather's going to fly over there in a uh, private plane, single engine uh, private plane. And so off they go. And of course, uh, halfway there, something's going wrong with the aircraft, as you can imagine. And it goes down into the Pacific Cascades, um, some of the most roughest, most challenging uh, terrain in North America, if not the world. The Bigfoot comes from there. And uh, the aircraft crashed in such a way that uh, Autumn Beach could get out. But she couldn't get her grandparents out. They were wedged in. And so she's trying to pull them out, and then the plane bursts into flames. And she actually burned her hand as she's trying to pull them out, right? And then, you know, of course, they perish right in front of her eyes. And you, you can imagine how horrific that must have been to die by fire. Um, they must have been screaming, you know. And in any case, uh, she saw all that, and every single piece of possible survival kit she could have had went up in flame with them. And then there she was in the forest in dinosaur country with nothing but a t-shirt on her back jeans and her uh, converse high tops and if she had curled up into the fetal position right then and there and willed herself to death nobody would have blamed her but instead she um she got her wits about her and she she told herself i gotta get out of here i've got to survive i'm too young <clears throat> to die <clears throat> excuse me and uh so what she did was she remembered one thing from her couch potato days. She used to like to sit on the potato, the, on the potato, on the sofa and watch these survival shows, these reality survival shows. And she remembered one thing. If you're ever lost in the wilderness, find a water feature and follow it because civilization occurs along water. Absolutely. So for three days, she was walking through the, through the woods there. And it gets kind of cold even in the summertime. And all she had was a T-shirt and she had a burnt hand. And uh, she, uh, on the third day, she came across a highway overpass. She got up there and she's trying to hitch a ride and nobody's stopping because she looks like something the, thumb, the, 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 the cat dragged in. Mm -hmm. And she made it to a uh, little roadside 7-Eleven uh, or something. And uh, some yuppies pulled up in a Subaru and uh, they said, what happened to you? And, you know, they were getting ready to go off hiking and uh, they got her to, uh, to uh, the authorities and uh, to recovery. That is survival mindset right there. Uh, she had nothing but the will to live. Yeah, though it sounds like the um, it's a combination of the will to live and a just a practical application of uh, just you know wood smarts and uh, you know equal success, something like that. And learn basic skills. Yeah, basic skills, just kind of very practical. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. What are what are some, what are some of the uh, basic skills like the just the you know one two and three of, of, of things that people should just know how to do? Okay, I teach a course and I've I've abbreviated it down to about a three or four hour uh, lecture and and uh, question and answer and with a uh, little break where we go outside and do uh, knots and everything. Uh, I do a little rope corral there, and that builds up to a follow on day, an eight hour day where we cover uh, the basics, which are shelter, water, how to acquire water, uh, how to filter it, purify it, transport it and store it, food, how to acquire it, how to prepare it, how to transport and store it, um, signaling, electronic and non-electronic, uh, think of things like signal mirrors and signal panels and signal fires, um, navigation, using uh, compass, azimuth and pace count, using uh, GPS and uh, using the, uh, the compass, the magnetic compass on your phone, which is not GPS, by the way, um, and it's not contingent upon towers. It works even if you're out of signal coverage. And then uh, weapons or tool, 
And of course, by weapon, I mean something that you could dispatch small game with. Okay, so those are the things that I'll cover. And um, of shelter, I'd say I, I teach three knots. I know about 33 knots and I can tie them blindfolded, but that's no good. I can't teach you 33 knots in the space of an hour. You'll never retain them. Okay, that's something it takes a lifetime to acquire that. But I can teach you three knots and you won't forget them. You know, the square knot, the uh, round turn and two half hitches, uh, and the trucker's hitch. And um, the round turn and two half hitches is an anchoring knot. And the trucker's hitch, people who don't know any knots know that one. That's how you tighten things down. And with that, we can take some little pieces of rope or string or parachute cord and a, a tarpaulin, mm-hmm. and we can go out to the woods and we can make an effective shelter. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I think uh, I was... Just thinking, I use two of those, you know, all the time. Uh, yeah. yeah, and, and uh, just that laundry list of stuff that you went that you went down, uh, that that pretty much covers, I would say, say the full gambit of anything. If you have those skills, you could uh, survive a plane crash, uh, a you know your car doing ninety two flips. Yeah, your odds significantly so, increase of yeah. for survival. Yeah, then yeah. you. Wherever you're at, if you have those basic skills, then yeah, your your chances of survival are exponentially increased. I know, yeah. I know, uh, Pete. We had been we were talking, uh, you know, earlier. You, you know, one of the things that you talked about was the rule of threes. I think the yes. I think the audience would would be interested in that. The, the rule of threes are your priorities, and that's the start point of it. Um, you can live without food for about three weeks. Like I said, by that time, you'll be eating your belt, your boots, but three weeks, you can make it. Um, You can live without water about three days, but the environment can take you down. The elements can take you down in three hours or less. Mm. So that tells us that shelter is your priority. Mm. Uh, I live in Pennsylvania, uh, about an hour north of here. I mean, I'm an hour out of Philadelphia, but there's towns, hamlets, there's civilization everywhere, even though my neighbors are Amish. But um, about an hour north of here, around Allentown, there's a section of highway. And twice in the past uh, 12 years that I've lived here, that place has been hit by snow and all the automobiles along it are stranded. And they can't clear them all out. They don't have the resources to clear them all out. People are stuck in place for 20, 12 to 24 hours. And the same thing happened this past winter down by Fredericksburg, Virginia. Right. Yeah, I made the news a then, lot. Yep. I-95, that's the most heavily trafficked highway in North America, if not the world. And uh, those people were stuck there for days. Now, how many people got a sleeping bag and some yeah. canned food and some water the inside water, their, uh, think so. yeah, their truck? Yeah, their truck. I do. I got my go ruck in there. You got know? <laughs> a go bag. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, I was thinking about that when uh, when you saw the you know the, the coverage. You know how many guys. You know you maybe. You know, uh, and then the um, just the idea that the mindset that people have that hey somebody is going to come for us. You know, at any second somebody the authorities are going to help me. They're they're the ones that are just going to you know, a uh, fast rope out of the tree, like, a, like a monkey. And they're going to uh, be there to take, you know, to help me out. And that's, that's something your book is reminding people that no, that's yeah, not going to happen. Yeah. Don't count <laughs> on it. Yeah. Count on, count on helping yourself. Yeah. If it happens, great. But, yeah. 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 Well, that's the other thing. Set yourself up for success. There's all kinds of resources nowadays. Yeah. Uh, we've got GPSs for navigating. Well, they've got little satellite uh, signaling devices nowadays, personal locator beacons. You press a button and a helicopter will show up. And they've got ones nowadays that can send, you know, satellite phones are very expensive. The, uh, the, the, the subscription for those are thousands of dollars a year. But they've got little personal locator beacons that can also send and receive text. Mm. And so... You know, you can say I'm I'm okay, or bring in medical supplies, or what have you. But those things work. It costs about two hundred dollars, and there's no annual subscription. They sell them at REI. You have that thing in your hand. You push a button, a helicopter will show up. Well, that's like cheap life insurance right there, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. 
You know, I, I was, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, shelter and, you know, water, you know, procurement yeah. and what have you. But I was thinking like in today's complaint, what you always hear is, um, you know, I can't get my kids away from the video game. And uh, I'm thinking, geez, man, as a, as a parent, you know, you know, take the kid outside, you know, build a shelter, you know, make a fire. You know, you're, 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 you're developing these uh, survival mindsets. You're, you're learning some real skills and you're getting them away from the video game, you know, and actually yeah. doing something that might actually save his life someday, his or her. Right. And you'll get, you'll get kickback from them at first. I've had this experience with my kids, but very quickly, Hell, I've had this experience with the younger guys on ODAs. Very quickly, they see the value of it. Yeah, it doesn't take long. And um, and and you know, it, it, it's a it's a good thing. You know, it's you take your kids out into the woods when it's snowing, and say, "Okay, here we are." And they go, "Well, it's kind of cold." Yeah, let's build a fire. How do you do that? <laughs> That's right. Everything's wet. Cold, it's yes, snow, but it can be done. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, do that, you know, and uh, and they'll have a huge appreciation uh, for what's going on uh, around here. The power goes out sometimes during these winter storms, so when we have a you know storm coming in, I make sure that we've got canned food. I've got. My, my little gas range, my Coleman gas range, I've got uh, water. I buy those five-gallon water jugs at, at, the, uh, at the store, you know, just to, it's the best way to store water that I can think of. And also I put uh, coolers by each toilet and fill it full of water. When the power goes out here, we don't have water because we're on a well. So this way you can flush the toilet. Well, the kids have learned to appreciate this over the years. They've learned how to plan. They've seen me do this. And, you know, we'll have candles, we'll have flashlights and things like that. And then if the power goes out, well, how are we going to charge up our devices? Nowadays, you have those little power sources. And, uh, you know, so they, they're developing the, the mindset, at least some. Yeah, and it's important really today. Um, what do you think about EMP? I mean, I know we're kind of, I'm going to, you know, throw a, a curveball at you a little bit, but... Um, you know, have, you th- have you thought about EMP and, and surviving in an EMP type situation? And do you have well, any I words do. of wisdom for I that? I think about that a lot because that's, to me, it it's possible that it can happen. And if it's possible that it can happen, sooner or later it's going to happen. And whether it's an EMP which knocks out our electric grid and um, anything that's computerized or uh, – it's some other form that causes, you know, massive social breakdown. We will be living at a primitive level very quickly. And um, the concerns are two things. What are we going to do for food? And um, what are we going to do for security? Because out here in the country where I'm at, our resources are a little more available. Okay. Not only do I have uh you know, a pantry full of tinned food and a big staple there is spam. <laughs> you know, that stuff is a miracle food for survival. <laughs> but, spam. Yeah. yeah. But on top of that, uh, I've got a forest full of bambies. You know, I've got all kinds of edible plants all around me. My neighbors are Amish. And sooner or later, the, you know, the scum is going to emerge out of places like Wilmington uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, Philadelphia, and they're going to come in this direction. So security becomes a thing. Suddenly, it's a team sport. I can't, you know, survive and pull watch 24-7. It's not going to work. And so I envision it something like this. Uh, up the end of uh, the road where I live on, uh, where it ties into one of the major secondary roads, there's a huge um, church, one of those giant fellowship places. It's big. Um And I imagine in my mind, we gather everybody together there and we say, right, um, let's have a little plan. Let's have a little power and they have a community meeting. And after they all finish talking, then I stand up and I say, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce myself to you. I'm the benevolent military dictator of the People's Republic of this place. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is how I suggest we do it. You Amish guys. 
uh, we need to pool resources and, you know, we're, we're willing to barter for food and give you whatever labor it requires. Now, all the able-bodied men, we're going to need survival, or sorry, we're going to need security positions established at this intersection, this intersection, this intersection, this intersection, and we're going to need roving patrols and a QRF. And uh, that's what it would have to look like. That's what success would look like. And it would still be, life would be hard. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, Along the lines of what it was like during the depression in the United States, because they didn't have an EMP, but they didn't need one. That was not uh, a society that had modern electronics like we do. It was most of them didn't have electricity in the old days. Yeah. It was very rural and uh, very polite. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's an anecdote I read about uh, in, in a book of stories about the Depression. Uh, this farmer's wife was telling her story about what it was like in the Depression. She said poor people would come to the door and ask for a plate of food. And she'd say, oh, come around back. And she'd bring them a plate of stew or whatever it was she had in the kitchen. And the men were out in the fields working. And one time a, a guy, a, you know, a vagrant, a passerby came by and asked for a plate of food and she said, go to the back porch. And she brought him a, a plate of uh, stew and potatoes and a piece of bread and uh, a cup of coffee. And uh, about 20 minutes later, she comes back. How's everything going? And he, he's sitting there and he holds up the cup and he goes, this coffee's cold. She says, wait right here. She comes back with the shotgun and runs him off. Hmm. Cause that's the way you have to be when people are hungry, they're desperate. And if, if that guy sensed weakness, he would be a big time security threat. Mm. And, and that, that's what the reality of life after an EMP would start to look like yeah. on an average day. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, the bands of 30. Have you, have you thought yeah. about, is, is that something that even in the 21st century is, is probably the right number? That's when you're living on a very primitive scale, living off the land as a, uh, you know, as a hunter gatherer with like absolute minimum resources, we're talking, you know, stone tools, throwing sticks, boomerangs, uh, you know, at that level, uh, the, the band of, uh, 30 or 40, if you want to bring it to a little more, um, modern era, look at your, um, feudal type of societies, and uh, the groups get larger, but that's because they've got agriculture. Okay. Because mm. I was thinking with EMP, I mean, it's per- that's going to get pretty primitive, but you still have use of, uh, you know, a lot of the modern tools and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, plus we, we do have agriculture, and that's a huge difference between the Stone Age and where we're at now, the, the agricultural revolution was the biggest, most significant thing that ever happened to human beings. Yeah, I mean, you can you can plant a garden um, and feed, you know, a family plus and have and have, right. you know, plenty over for, for uh, and not even a big garden, but uh, but have plenty of material for barter. Are the um, Amish are the Amish better prepared than we are than the average? I mean, I, I, what they call us the English, but uh, are the are the uh, the Amish better prepared for survival type events? Well, let me answer it this way: You can tell the Amish houses around here. There's there's like two or three different kinds. There's the Mennonites, which uh, they drive around in cars. They look Amish. They have their the 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 gear, the costume, and the hair haircut and everything. Uh, but they drive around in cars and they've got tractors and stuff. Then you've got the, you know, traditional standard Amish. And uh, uh, those guys, uh, you can tell their houses because they don't have electricity going into the house. And um, we, we see their, their women on the side of the road in the summertime um, using weed whackers. For some reason, their technology lets them use a weed whacker. And they'll be on the side of the road on the tarmac barefoot. Um, they're, they're pretty tough people and they're pretty resilient and they make do with life on a very primitive level. Um, so, so my, so my, my, my survival plan is I'm going Amish. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to change, I'm going to change my faith right there on the spot. Find me a nice Amish girl. 
Yeah, it, it, it's a hard life, and uh, I, I don't know how they do it. Uh, and um, but I would say, yeah, they're better they're prepared. Definitely ahead of the, uh, they're they're more prepared than we are for uh, a, a prepping type situation. Yeah, because just the, the skills that they have. I mean, there's people don't even know how to sew anymore. They don't know how to oh, cook wow. anymore. Um, yeah, don't know how to change a tire anymore. I mean, yeah. it's gotten kind of we we've gotten pretty soft and really. Kind of set ourselves up for failure. Upon technology, yep, absolutely. You know, you just said something that um, struck a chord with me. I, I've got two daughters, and uh, I made sure that they understood how to change a tire. And they say, "I will never have to do that." And I say, "Yeah, you're never going to have to do that until you have to do it." And it's true, the tires are better quality nowadays. And um, I, I always included little kits in their vehicle. And I've got, uh, you know, a, a little vehicle recovery kit. I, I have a small plastic foot locker in the back of my truck. And um, I always pull it out and look at sometimes I post on social media, what am I missing here? And then I'll get the idea for the next thing to put in there. Um, but everything from uh, tow ropes to, uh, you know, nowadays you can get a little jumper cable box. It's got a 12 volt battery in it. Um, that you charge up off of your uh, cigarette lighter, and at the same time, it's got an air compressor in there. So if you got a flat, you can patch that flat with a with a, a tubeless tire patch kit. Then boom, you just add a little air and then keep driving on. Um, yeah, so I've got all kinds of things like that. Shovels. Um, a, a big problem here is in the winter time, uh, your car can be stuck in a parking lot or something and now it's sliding and you can't get any traction to get out and there's a lot of hills around here so you know this is a real problem well they've got these sort of little um i don't know what you'd call them these treads these tracks they're made out of hard rubber uh connected with steel cable and they roll up um and they sell them at uh auto parts stores well that's a handy piece of kit to have uh, i got a couple of those um so, yeah, uh, your vehicle kit is very important. And then again, like I said, Fredericksburg, Virginia, they don't get heavy snow down there very often. They certainly don't get an event like what happened this past winter where all of 95 was shut down and people were stranded for, you know, days. Sleeping bag sure comes in handy at that point in time. Well, you mentioned something, too, which, I, which uh, is kind of – you know, unique because of these generations. But if you're raising daughters today, um, you're not <laughs> forget relying on your boyfriend or your husband. Okay. Cause uh, he may or may not be prepared to even change a tire. I like, right. I like, I like what you, I like what you were saying. Like my daughters can change a tire. And if you're raising rearing daughters, you really need to make sure that that these daughters are set up because and I and I and I have sons too, but I, I tell my boys, I said, listen, if you get a flat tire, the last thing you want to do is have your girlfriend have to have to show you how to change the tire. Okay, <laughs> uh, you know, don't be that guy. All right, um, but yeah, you need to, you know, just because you got a uh, the daughters are going to have to step up. I mean, I, I hate yeah. to say that, but some of these young men are just not prepared for. Um, you know, a survival situation or even just something like a breakdown on the side of the road. Uh, well, that goes back to people are reliant on technology. They're going through life planning on a best case scenario. Mm. And um, yeah, they're, uh, they feel betrayed if, if their technology fails them. Yeah. yeah, I think that's something else uh, that I know that you're, uh, you're majoring in, in the survival mindset, Pete, is – just that idea that uh, I know that we're taught in SEER uh, that what's underscored is the fact that, you know, once, you're, once your mind, once you've given up in your mind, you're toast. And, yeah. uh, and so that's something that uh, I know that you, you highlight that, uh, you know, your, your thoughts become your actions. And so you, it's, uh, you know, it's just it's so important. Uh, I know that you highlight that as the, you know, just keep uh, keep your calm, uh, keep your your head, you know, screwed on tight, and that uh, you know survival really starts in your mind. Uh, Absolutely. I, I know you know, 
And I, I haven't read your book. Uh, for those who are listening, and you thought, "What a turd!" You're, <laughs> you're, uh, you have the guy come on the podcast, and you haven't even read the book. But I know that Pete is a quality guy. He's one heck of a uh, instructor and one heck of a model American. And I know that you would say, "Hey, your philosophy of survival starts with that." Uh, that you, you know, if if you live or die, it's really because it started in your mind. Well, Absolutely. yeah, and let's, let's talk about this too, Pete. Because yeah, we haven't read your book. We but um, let's talk about the, the 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 references that you use to create the book because you know I'm familiar with you know the Army Survival Manual and you know a lot of us have read a lot of good books, um, but yours is a little different. Let's talk about what what your why your book is actually a, a better read, if, if you will, because yeah. it goes a little, it goes a little broader. It's a little more broad yeah. spectrum. Well, for references, I started with uh, the Army Field Manual. It's three zero five tac seven zero, and it's formerly FN twenty one seventy six survival. And I worked on the earlier iteration of that ninety two, the twenty one seventy six. We took the old manual. We went through it and everything we found to be, say, like an old wives' tale, uh, to, we validated it. And then we restructured it. And uh, so that was the, that's my primary reference. Then Air Force Regulation 64-4, Volume 1, Air Crew Survival Training. Um, that's their survival manual. Um, Field Manual 3-25-26, Map Reading and Land Navigation. As I wrote the book, I thought, you know, I was saying, okay, now movement, that's important. You have to have a stout pair of boots. Um, you have to uh, uh, be able to make a poncho raft. Hmm, map and compass, uh, alternate to map and compass, GPS, uh, the electronic compass on your uh, smartphone. And I thought, wait a minute. These people, my target audience might not even know how to read a map or use a compass and so how can I cram that whole manual into this book? Because it takes 40 classroom hours and about another four days of practical application and, you know, heartbreaking tears out there at Camp McCall on the star, you know, land nav course to learn map reading and land navigation. Uh, so I cover some basics. I give them a start point of how to read a map and how to use a compass, et cetera. Okay. Um, a few other of the sources, um, I provide some internet fundamentals, findmesar.com, uh, the GIS surfer interactive maps, um, a, a few, uh, articles like that came from, uh, the internet, how a personal locator beacon could save your life living off the land. And then, um, I included the. Uh, the SAS survival manuals uh, that were uh, put together and marketed in the 80s by, uh, what was the name of that guy? Um, not McNabb. Uh, I'm pulling mine out of my bookshelf right now. I got McNabb's book. The, the other one, I uh, can't remember his name right now. And um, so I've got that. And I also, another source that I used I came across the notes that the OSS were using for the Jedberg teams for survival skills. And they didn't have a manual. They had some notes, which are remarkable. Um, and they're very useful as far as uh, edible plants and animals uh, in the European theater, which are very similar to North America. So I used that. And it's just kind of interesting to tie in our old OSS heritage, um, you know, that's what that's what I really like about it, is the fact that you really went out there and just kind of grabbed, you know, what you liked. You know, you, you have an extensive library, and uh, there was things in, in, in that, that other people put out that you just really liked and you wanted to capture. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a very good book about navigation. The average civilian, if they got their hands on the land nav, map reading land nav manual, it's overwhelming. But there's a very good book that I resourced. Um it's everybody speaks highly of wilderness navigation um, by Bob Burns and Mike Burns, finding your way using map compass, altimeter, and GPS. And that's a, 
it's in a more digestible format than the uh, than the map reading land navigation manual. And uh, so I gave them a plug. Um, yeah. So anyhow, yeah, those are my sources there, and the Boy Scout manual, of course, going way back. Hey, uh, Pete, I just wanted to shift gears on you. Uh, reading your bio and knowing about you, um, I I didn't actually know that you lived. Um, let's see, it was Thailand and where else was it? Indonesia. Yes. Okay. So having, I grew up in yeah. Southeast Asia. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty unique. My dad was an engineer. Yeah, that's um, wild. Power plants, and uh, I grew up in Southeast Asia. I'm not the only Green Beret. Uh, there's a, a about half a dozen of us, and we all uh, went to the International School Bangkok back wow. in the 70s. Yeah, um, and I tell you what, the uh, perspective that gives you, yeah, is remarkable. I imagine. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, how formative was that? Having grown up in Southeast Asia, and then you know you're later. talking about uh, living there, and then later, and then later going into first group. Yeah, I mean, how formative was that to not only your career but then to this topic? Well, I would say it's like this: when I lived in Thailand, it was um, they didn't have a middle class; they do now, but they did then. Uh, they uh, it was a very much an agrarian uh, society. Bangkok's a huge metropolis, of course. But um, most of the Thais uh, lived on farms. And so you saw that. Um, you saw the, the people doing primitive skills. And I didn't just live in Thailand. That was uh, I lived there for 10 years. But before that, I was in Bangladesh back when I was East Pakistan. And before that, I was in Sumatra. You saw guys um, using hand tools, which are made by hand, wow. like a bow drill. There was no power drills. They would use a bow drill. Uh, you would see things like that. Um, and, yeah. you know, I learned how to make traps to catch birds and small animals from Thai farmers um, and those sorts of things. Uh, so that was very formative. And then something else we saw, which uh, probably had a huge uh, effect on my life. I'd say it certainly did. I was there in the 1970s. Now, you know what was going on in the 1970s in Southeast Asia? Of course. Uh, was the yeah. huge struggle against communism yeah. in, you know, into China, i.e. Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. But also they had uh, communist uh, movements in Thailand, uh, Malaya, mm. Indonesia, the Philippines. And, um, you know, uh, I was in Thailand from 1970 to 79. Well, 1975, uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos came crashing down and we had friends over there. They all showed up and then we, the refugees were coming and we heard what the hell was going on. Mm. And I wanted to understand what is going on. What is communism all about? What's totalitarianism all about? What's yeah. all the, driving this savagery? Yeah. And so I started studying, um, revolutionary movements totalitarian societies, guerrilla warfare. And of course that increased when I became a green beret, cause that's what we do and what we study. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it gave me a, a pretty strong, uh, start point, uh, you know, um, as far as all that goes Absolutely. and yeah, now, now you see what's happening over in Ukraine. Um, it's not communism, but it's, totalitarianism it's right. oppression and communism i always say this it doesn't matter whether you call it communism nazism fascism whatever it is it's oppression right. it is oppression and tyranny yeah, it's right. the same Absolutely. thing you know they're all the same and um you know so what is that and then uh as far as survival mindset as far as uh situational awareness um you know how does it how, how should we, uh, you know, conduct ourselves? And, um, and we should, we look, we must look so, uh, spoiled. I mean, you, you lived over there, you grew up over there and then you, you know, I, I can't rem remember when you came here, uh, back here, but we must look so spoiled. I mean, even today. Well, I think Americans too. Don't I, know I, how good, yeah. America. How good we have it. Yeah. And I, you know, and you, you just said something that just kind of, 
reminded me. I mean, some of the most, you know, people that we're hearing a lot from are people that escaped these these countries. They, they escaped this tyranny. They escaped the oppression. Um, they've worked very hard to get to America. Um, and they're the ones that are like going, hey, you guys better wake up. You know, this is exactly what, you know, I was experiencing as a, as a youth or as an adult back where I'm from. And, you know, you got, you guys aren't getting it, man. These guys are coming, you know, and they, they don't go away. They don't give up. Uh, That is absolutely true. Um, The veneer between civilization and savagery is very thin, Mm. very thin. I've seen what people are willing to do in a refugee camp for one cigarette. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's sobering Mm. how primitive life can get, how desperate people can be so quickly. And, um, and, and yeah, there's, there's a a cold, cruel world out there. America, we have it so good. People can't imagine. I'll just put it in perspective. You know, um, in Eastern Europe, most of those people don't have bank accounts. And, uh, you know, those are modern European people, you know, in Israel, people don't, you know, don't have bank accounts. It's not like here, uh, in Israel, I'd say they have bank accounts, but a doctor in Israel makes about 80,000 a year. It's a different kind of society. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's any contractor can get that. Uh, <laughs> as you know, well, you mean, you mean they're not using Google pay? They're not using their smartphone at the drive-through window. Come wow. on, man. Hey, hey, uh, hey, Pete. On that note, also having uh, having taught at the Sear Committee uh, and and been so uh, involved in the uh, instruction, just curious. All having stepped back and looking at all that stuff that you taught those guys, what's something just maybe a couple things just stand out that's. Uh, uh, that, you know, you could just share with us that you're allowed to. Um, well, I'm just gonna throw in one caveat. Sometimes I get approached and people want me to uh, talk about evasion and tactical stuff. And I draw the line at that because I don't know who I'm teaching. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking if you're a civilian, uh, if you're just a standard average citizen member of society, what do you need to learn evasion skills for? Who are you running away from? Exactly. You know, so I want to be very careful about that. Likewise, teaching tactical stuff. Um, many of our comrades run shooting schools and stuff. And I think that's glorious. If I was doing that, and I, oh, I've taught uh, marksmanship before, I'm, there's a thin line between self-defense, home defense, and, uh, you know, offensive operations. Who are you teaching? Uh, I wouldn't be teaching um, CQB unless I know who the target audience is. Okay, it's the sheriff's deputies. Fine, I'll train you. Uh, these uh, standard rank and file over here, I don't know who they are. Internet commandos. Yeah, um, yeah it could be um, cartels. It could be uh, yeah. organized crime. You just never know. Um, what would I take back from my observations as an instructor? Um, well, I've had things that happened to me in um in seer things you know uh training events and everything and then later it comes back to me out there in the real world and and i'm of course i'm trying to stuck for a uh, a vivid example or an anecdote right now it'll come in a moment probably well, a minute well for those for those that uh, may not be familiar we're talking about seer school uh, i think we're bad sometimes like throwing out these acronyms yeah. on have you, but survival escape resistance and evasion um yes but yeah, as, was, as far as like yeah, just like just I'm, I'm just thinking like just like you know your your observation yeah. of students that go through this sort of environment um most people will tell you it's the best training they've ever received in the military bar, that's right bar none um because there's a there's a very large mental aspect to that course there's yeah, there's, there's a yeah. lot of mental growth that, that, was, that that's where I was going Pete it's yeah what, what just, do you uh, it's like for me personally was you know stay in the circle Remember, don't freak out. Remember the mission. The mission didn't stop just because you're captured. Those types of things. A lot of people, I know like a lot of people um, that come out of a prisoner of war, real life, not not, not school, but a real life prisoner of war type situation. Um, they, they, they talk about the importance of faith yeah. and just, just kind of remembering 
you know, the big picture, if you will. Well, that is quite right. Um, and I, I read the story about the Hanoi Hilton, uh, the American aviators, uh, and, uh, being held in, uh, in, in Hualo prison in Hanoi and they were under horrific conditions. And, um, one of the strongest things that they, they did to maintain was, uh, religious services and for the first half of the experience there which was many years they were being held in isolation they would have to uh communicate via tap code and do their religious services that way after um the the bombing campaigns uh increased and uh there was a lot of pressure put onto the uh, north vietnamese to uh you know treat them more humanely they were allowed to come together um, and gathered together. The first thing they did was have religious services, non-denominational religious services. Um, when I was a kid in Thailand, uh, we were very impressed by the uh, River Kwai, the uh, experience of the Commonwealth, the Dutch, and American prisoners uh, in Kanchanaburi, uh, building the bridge there over the River Kwai. Mm -hmm. And um, when we met some of them. We read their books. We went to the uh, to the Commonwealth War Grave. Uh, uh, cemeteries there it's it's just it's remarkable to go and see all that place and get to know it firsthand and one of the um best books that emerged about that experience was miracle on the river Kwai, and it was about these guys they had absolutely nothing their, their uniforms had decayed to the point where they're living in loincloths they all had dysentery they had terrible diseases their teeth were falling out the uh, you know, uh, one guy's cleft palate, it, it rotted out, all, all kinds of things. Um, just horrific conditions, the most primitive, extreme uh, human uh, situation you can imagine. And they decided, um, well, let's explore, uh, you know, faith. We've got nothing else. So let's, let's look into this religion business. And these are some hardcore, you know, Australian and British type uh, squatties. And uh, so they, they, discuss that in the book and then at the end of the war um, right at the end of the war things ended very quickly in southeast asia so they were put onto a train and they were coming back towards bangkok they're being repatriated and they there there's a big train junction um in a place called nakam patom and they were there and uh halfway to bangkok and there was a train full of japanese uh soldiers wounded coming back uh, from the China-Burma-India uh, front there in Burma. And their observation was these guys were stacked there and they weren't getting any treatment. And they their observation was two things. Well, no wonder they treated us so bad. Look how they treat their own people. The other thing was, let's go and help them. You know. Wow, yeah. That they, uh, they maintain their humanity yeah. through faith. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine their feeling towards the Japanese and they said, let's go help them. And they were wow. rendering aid to these guys uh, because that's the Christian thing to do. Wow. Praise God. That's awesome. Hey, uh, Pete, it's a wonderful time we spent with you, my friend. Uh, and for our listeners, remember this, uh, the book is survival mindset, a guide on what to do when things go wrong by Peter Crittenden, uh, green beret, uh, American patriot, a uh, good friend, and uh, Pete, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, I know Mike and I are encouraged by uh, you know everything you've taught us today. We, we can take a lot out of the uh, the rule of three, uh, the all of the gems you dropped during the book. Yeah, the importance probably, of that mindset. Yeah, we can listen to this for hours, many times, and uh, get something new each time and each fresh listen. So I appreciate you, my friend, uh, and Godspeed to you as you uh, uh, you write more books and you live vicariously through others. <laughs> thanks, sir. <laughs> you have a blessed, thanks, brother. Thanks, Pete. Yes, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast. Uh, if you enjoy our content and unique perspective, we hope you'll check out our sponsors, Blacksmith Publishing. Been serving the warrior class since 2013. Blacksmith Publishing has great titles written by warriors for warriors. 
So if you're looking for a great reference book on land navigation or small unit tactics, or perhaps you just want to unwind in the G-Base and read a great novel, be sure to check them out at blacksmithpublishing.com. If you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, head on over to the general store located at pinelander1776.com. Got a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, sweaters, stickers, and anything else you can imagine. That's pinelander1776.com. Tell them Paul and Mike sent you. Until our next meeting, remember to keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. Viva la Pineland. Viva la Pineland. Viva la Pineland.